Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. With that, I will continue our worship with Genesis chapter 2, verses 4b through 8. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I get started this morning, I want to take a moment to address what happened this past Wednesday. I think most of us have seen what went on, and it was really deplorable, and frankly, never should have happened. And I think that what it speaks to is the fact that we in this country, we are so separated from each other, we are so divided now, that we only feel that we can be heard if we commit acts of violence. And I think that that is a really bad place for us to be because ultimately we need to be a country that can actually listen to each other. And I think this is a place where Christianity has something to offer us. So the early church was a place where they actually didn't get along. Even though in Acts we read that people were harmonious with each other, the fact is they were very partisan. They were at each other's throats. Uh, They had different ways of thinking about being Christian, how to be Christian, how to be followers of Jesus. They didn't agree on that. But they knew they had to come together in order to create a church that could be unified, that could make their way forward. And so they worked to overcome many of their differences by trying to talk through them. And we actually see this in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. And in that letter, he says something that's really amazing. It still resonates to this day, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, free nor slave, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. I think if Paul were writing that today, he might have included there are neither Republicans nor Democrats. The fact is, is that we aspire to something that is so much greater than simple politics. We worship a God that tries to unify us together as one people. And as we're going to talk about today in this sermon, we were created in the image and likeness of God, and that is what we are trying to aspire to in our lives. And so I hope that this church can be a place where we can have these discussions. We are a church of truly mixed 
people in terms of our political ideologies. We do not all agree on how we think about politics. Some of us are far to the right, some of us are far to the left. There's all kinds of people in the middle. But I hope that we can have these types of discussions in our church. We can have them in a civil way. Because the truth is, if we're speaking to each other out of anger, then we're never really going to listen to what the other person has to say. Because we can disagree with each other, but if we ultimately hold God and Jesus as our highest ideals, that we are aspiring to be like them, then we can overcome those things and actually work together to get things done even if we do disagree with each other. So I hope that we would be a model right here on the corner of Dunton Avenue that we could actually show other people what this looks like right here and that ultimately the Christian faith would be a guiding force that could actually help to mend the wounds that we find in this country. So today we are going to turn to our sermon series where we will talk about this idea from Genesis chapter 1. And the sermon series we've been doing at the beginning of this new year is called Brave New World. Brave New World is named for the book that was written in 1932 by Aldous Huxley where he imagines this future that has been greatly transformed by the technology of human beings. And so this is the reason why I have actually named this particular sermon series Brave New World because over the next 10 to 20 years, we are going to experience a technological revolution. It is estimated that we are going to see technological innovation that is going to ultimately transform the way we operate as humans on this earth. We're going to see transformations in genetic engineering and artificial intelligence and colonization of other planets. So many different ways we're going to see the world shift and change. And so the way this sermon series is going to operate is that each week we're going to look at one of these innovations. We're going to ask, what is it going to do to change our world? How's it going to shift the world that we live in? What is it going to do to us? What are the ethics behind it? Then we're going to turn that around and we're going to ask the question, what does the Christian faith have to offer? What does it have to say to help guide us as a society as we are maneuvering around and through this innovation? And I think that what you will come to find is that the Christian faith really does have a lot of important things to say in terms of trying to help us navigate this brave new world in which we find ourselves. So last week, we began our series by talking about the impending genetic revolution and how that is going to create a world where humans end up suffering a lot less than they do right now. Today, we're going to take the next logical step forward in talking about that genetic revolution, and we're going to talk about how genetic engineering is going to impact reproduction. Now, this is actually something that comes directly out of the book Brave New World, but we're going to get to that a little bit later on. How I want to begin this sermon is by talking about something that is going to happen in the next 10 to 20 years. What we're going to witness is the first child who is grown and born in a lab. Now, if you're having trouble imagining what that might be like, I want to lay it out for you. So today, in order for a human baby to be born, it requires a female egg, a male sperm, and a female womb to nurture the fetus over a period of nine months. Now, in the last 10 years, what scientists and doctors have been working on is creating an artificial environment that can mimic what happens inside of the female womb. And we see this happening over in a place like Philadelphia, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So they have been working 
on an artificial womb that can nurture a child. Now, what you can see here on the screen is that they have used this, not on humans yet, but on a premature baby lamb. And they have been able to allow this baby lamb to get to 24 weeks of gestation, which is the equivalent in a human being of 24 weeks. So what they've been able to do is they've been getting better and better at this technology. And as it comes along, the hope is is that one day they can stick a human baby inside of that. Now, the reason they want to do this is because every year, 30,000 babies are born premature. And those little babies, they end up, many of them, with disabilities. Sometimes they grow out of those disabilities. Sometimes those disabilities last for the whole of their lives. And so the idea is, is that if they could transfer the baby from the womb of the mother into this artificial womb, then they would have the opportunity to come to term and they would be able to grow in a way that would allow them not to have a lot of these disabilities. Now, I want you to imagine that they're able to perfect this technology and they're able to use it on premature babies, but also not just in emergencies. In the future, they may start using this as a means of actually growing and birthing children. Now, how would that change our world? In order to give you a sense of what's coming with that, I want to show you a clip from the movie Gattaca. We watched Gattaca last week, and Gattaca is about a future where we have perfected genetic engineering and what that could do to us as humans. And so this is a scene where two parents are going in in order to have a second child. And they want to show you what it's like when you go in for this process. So go ahead, let's take a look at this clip from Gattaca. Like most other parents of their day, they were determined that their next child would be brought into the world in what has become the natural way. Your extracted eggs, uh, Marie, have been fertilized with Antonio's sperm. After screening, we are left, as you see, with two healthy boys and two very healthy girls. Naturally, no critical predispositions to any of the major inheritable diseases. All that remains is to select the most compatible candidate. First, we may as well decide on gender. Have you given it any thought? Uh, we would want Vincent to have a brother, you know, um, to play with. Of course you would. Hello, Vincent. <laughs> uh, you have specified hazel eyes, dark hair, and uh, fair skin. I have taken the liberty of eradicating any potentially prejudicial conditions, uh, premature baldness, myopia. Alcoholism and addictive susceptibility, uh, propensity for violence, obesity, etc. We didn't want, I mean, diseases, yes, but. Uh... Right, we were just wondering if, if it's good to just leave a few things to, to chance. You want to give your child the best possible start. Believe me, we have enough imperfection built in already. No, your child doesn't need any additional burdens. And keep in mind, this child is still you, simply the best of you. You could conceive naturally a thousand times and never get such a result. So as you can see from the movie, essentially what happens is you have a female egg, a male sperm, and they go in and they remove all of the genetic issues that you might face. And what they don't talk about in this particular part of the movie and what was actually implied, and they don't show it, is that the woman no longer has to go through the process of actually bearing the child and actually going through childbirth. 
that whole process is outsourced. And so what happens is the child ends up being born and the couple or the individual comes and picks up the baby and they raise the child. Now, Brave New World takes this idea one step further. So in the book, what we find is that like Gattaca, you have people who are going to labs in order to have their children, except that you don't have people donating eggs and sperm in order to have the children. This is all genetically engineered in a lab. And in the book, there's actually not even fathers and mothers. The fact is, is that people are no longer participating in the raising of these children any longer. And so what occurs in the book is they've actually, it's a weird little part of it, is that he makes it so that the terms father and mother are actually outlawed in the book that they are derogatory obscenities, that they're not used in common social vocabulary. Now, I'm not trying to say that what's happening in Brave New World is going to happen in our world, but what I am trying to say is, is that over the next 10 to 20 years, we are gonna see a massive shift in the way that we understand reproduction in our society. And I want to give you an example of how this could possibly happen, of how some of Gattaca and some of Brave New World might actually occur. So what we see in industrialized, educated nations is that there is a decline in reproduction, that we see a fall-off. Now, in some countries, that fall-off is gradual, but in other countries, it's quite, quite steep. And so in a country like Japan, where they have seen a precipitous decline in their reproduction rates, what they are looking at is a situation where they would not be able to replace the people that they have currently right now. So since the 1970s, the Japanese have seen a decline in their birth rates every single year. And this has actually gotten to the point where now they have more deaths than births. So in 2019, they had 900,000 births and 1.4 million deaths. So deaths outpaced births by 500,000 people. Now what this means for them is that they're gonna have a shortage of labor in the short term. Now the way that they're trying to make up for this shortage of labor is that they are attempting to bring people into their country. They're trying to immigrate and workers. But they have very strict immigration requirements. So if you are going to come into their country, you have to know the Japanese language. You have to take a test demonstrating your proficiency. And then on top of that, you also have to show that you understand Japanese custom and culture. Now, once you have taken the test and once you come in, then you can be a part of their system. But there's very few people who are able to do that. And it's filling in the gap for what they need right now. But eventually, that population decline is going to be so steep that they're not going to be able to simply immigrate people into their country unless they're willing to open the floodgates and they lower their standards. And this is why scientists have been looking at this new reproductive technology as a means of saving their culture. So since Japanese people seem to have less and less interest in reproducing and raising their own children, the idea would be that 
scientists could create children, literally birth them in a lab, and they could be raised in group homes in Japan. And so in this way, they could learn the language, learn the culture, learn the traditions, learn the customs, and thereby preserving what they have right now. Now, I'm not trying to say that this is a great idea necessarily, but what I am saying is that this is one way forward that industrialized nations may look at in terms of trying to replace their population as their population starts to decline. Now, if this actually does represent the future, then I think that brings up some really important questions in terms of being able to try to figure out what are the ethics around this? How do we as Christians respond to this type of innovation and technology? And this is where we turn to the book of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 1, what we find is that it says that human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. And what's interesting about this is that out of all the creatures that are created on this planet, we are the only ones that are given that specific attribute, that we are made in God's image and likeness. Now, there's a lot of different ways that we can interpret this. And many Christians, what they do agree on is that from God's perspective, human beings are special. How we are special is that we have a bit of God's spirit inside of us. And we can see this in Genesis chapter 2. And this is where God actually forms Adam out of the clay of the earth. And God breathes life into him. So when God does that, what we can see is there's this really beautiful idea that human beings have been given the breath or the spirit of God. Now, if we were to take this particular scripture, Genesis, literally, what that means is, is that Adam and Eve are the first two people to ever occupy the planet. And that every single human being, all of us, are descendant from them. And so from the perspective of the Bible, using the logic of the Bible, what that means is, is that all human beings who have come after Adam have the breath of God inside of them, or have the spirit of God inside of them. And in fact... Many of the early Christians, they really believed this to be true because they didn't have any understanding of genetics. And so what they believed was that the soul was literally passed from one person to the next through sexual intercourse. And so the earliest Christians, they believed that the man's sperm literally transferred Adam's original soul into the woman to create a new child. So every child born since Adam's creation has inherited Adam's original soul. And this is why Christians traditionally have been so against abortion. Because if every human being has God's breath, God's spirit, Adam's original soul, then that means that all human beings are of infinite value. And so therefore, to stop that life, to prevent that life from coming to fruition, is considered unethical. And in that way, you see that some Christians even go so far as to say that if we are to end life early, committed abortion, that that's equal with murder. Now, if we were to then take this idea that I talked about earlier, where humans are able to create a child in a lab, what does that do to this particular idea? How does that impact this theological framework that I just talked to you about. Because if a child is born in a lab through genetically manipulated material, does that mean that that child has 
the breath or spirit of God within it? Or does a child only have the breath or spirit of God if they are born through sexual intercourse? If what makes a human being special is the fact that they have Adam's soul inside of them, then does that mean that a child that's born out of a lab lacks a soul? Now, if you're a traditional Christian and you read the Genesis story literally, then what that means is that the answer to that question is no. That a child who's born in a lab does not have a soul because it's similar to the concept of abortion. It's unethical. So it's not unethical because you're preventing a life from coming to fruition. It's unethical because you're preventing that life that you're creating from being special. You're stripping it of a soul. Now, of course, all of this way of thinking is really steeped in ancient modalities, ancient ways of thinking about the world. And thanks to the advancement of science, we now today understand that that's not the way that human beings actually came about. We understand that Adam and Eve were not the first two people to ever occupy the planet, that we as human beings, like every other organism on this planet, we are the product of an evolutionary process. Now, what many Christians get upset about when we start talking about evolution is that they don't really like this idea because it tends to prevent them from feeling like we are special. So if God didn't intentionally create us and make us and we are the product of evolution, then essentially what that means is we are the product of random chance. And so if we're the product of random chance, we could just as easily not be here if luck hadn't fallen our way. So whereas the Bible makes it seem as though there is some real intention behind our creation, evolution removes that from our way of thinking. It actually removes all of that purpose. And so for me, I tend to look at evolution because I subscribe to it. I actually don't subscribe to this way of thinking. I actually think that what makes a human special is that we have the ability to recognize that God exists. We are the only creatures on the planet that we know of who have the ability to be able to consciously reflect on God's existence and more importantly to consciously interact with that existence. Now whether a child is born from a mother's womb or in a lab, that factor will never change. So I think for some people, they may say, well, this child doesn't have a soul, or they would talk about it as though the child doesn't have a soul. From my perspective, I think whether they're born in a lab or born of a mother's womb, that child does have a soul. And I know that many Christians would disagree with me about that because they would say, no, a child should be born from a father and a mother, as children have been for tens of thousands of years. And if you do anything to subvert or tamper with that process, then you are going against God's natural order. And what I found to be true is that many Christians, they really tend to focus in on how a child is born. In fact, they get really, really caught up in even the moment of birth itself to the point where they tend to ignore what happens in the conception of the child or what happens after the child is born. As long as the child is born, that is all that matters. And this reminds me of this really interesting quote by the Benedictine nun, Joanne Chittister. And this is what she says. I do not believe that just because you are opposed to abortion, that makes you pro-life. 
In fact, I think in many cases, your morality is deeply lacking if all you want is a child born, but not a child fed, not a child educated, not a child housed. That's not pro-life, that's pro-birth. We need a much broader conversation on what the morality of pro-life is. So from the perspective of many Christians, abortion is really about that moment of birth. They are not truly concerned with the social outcomes of the child. And I can tell you that as I look at the future over the next 10 to 20 years, which is going to change the way that child, a child is born into this world, I really am very concerned not with how a child is born, so whether a child's born from a mother or born in a lab, but the social outcome of that child. And let me give you an example of what I mean by this. So if we go back to our example with Japan, and the Japanese are going to try to preserve their culture by possibly having these children born in a lab and then raised in group homes, I think that raises some serious ethical issues about how those children are going to be raised. Because here in the United States, when a child is placed in a group home, they usually don't have a very good outcome as a result of being there. And the reason why they end up in a group home is usually because their primary caretaker can no longer care for them. And once they're in, a lot of times, children in those situations, they end up having a lot of issues. They can have issues with emotional problems, they can have behavioral issues, they can have psychological issues. There's a lot of things that can come with this. And one of the reasons why this happens in the United States is because group homes are really designed to be temporary. So when your primary caretakers can no longer care for you in the way that you need to be, the idea of going to the group home is so that you can then either go to a foster care program or so that you can eventually be placed with your primary caretakers again. And so these children, they're coming from these really chaotic, unstable environments. And as a result, they really feel unloved and uncared for. And so it just creates this really tough dynamic for them. So if the Japanese are going to create group homes, it needs to be the exact opposite of that. It needs to be a situation where when they are born into this group home, they are shown love and warmth and kindness and compassion. It needs to be a place where they can really thrive. Really, it needs to be much more like a village and a lot less like a refugee camp, which is essentially what it is here in the United States. And that can be done if they get the basics right. So if they put a lot of resources into it, if they make the group home very nice, where they have a really nice room for them to live in, if they provide them with good food, good education, good medical coverage, and most importantly, having adults who really care and nurture their needs, then it can actually work out. In fact, what you would find is that the way these children are raised is that it would be exactly like what Jesus experienced when he was growing up in the town of Nazareth. Nazareth has a population of about 75 to 100 people. You can see on the map there that it's this little tiny dot actually in the midst of the mountains. And so this small little village, you just have to imagine the people who were there you know, they really knew each other quite well. So, you know, yes, Jesus had his mother as his primary caretaker, and maybe even a grandmother, who knows. But the fact is, is that he would have depended on that whole town to really 
care for him. And so in this way, what we have to realize is that he mirrors the Christian faith based on this idea of he wants his movement to be like a family that can raise the children together, very similar to what he experienced when he was growing up. And so in the gospel, he really has a very specific place for children. Children are very, very important to him. And so this is why Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. So from the perspective of Christianity, one of the most important values that we uphold is the social outcomes of children, making sure that they are raised properly. And so as I look at this brave new world, where in the future we're going to see these children who are born in vastly different ways than what we have experienced in the past, I think what Christianity has to offer is the ethical framework around how these children should be raised. And that is, we're looking back to the way Jesus was raised, and we need to do what he talked about, which is we need to create a community of people where the parents are not just caring for their own children, but they're willing to care for all of the children, regardless of how they are born. Now, what does this mean for you practically today? Because the fact is, this is 10, 20 years, maybe even further off in the future. What does this mean for us right now? So as Christians, I really believe that it's so important for us to understand that the world has already shifted under our feet. So, so many people, particularly in this church, grew up with the nuclear family as being the primary mode of raising children. You had two parents, and those parents would have children, they would raise those children. That has actually shifted quite dramatically over the last 30 to 50 years. So that's no longer necessarily happening the same way it once did. And that's fine that children are going to be raised in these different circumstances. And when we think about children possibly being born in a lab, that's just one more of those circumstances. So I think for us, we need to see our church as a place where families can come wherever they come from, however they're born, whoever they are, and they can find this place as a place where they can raise their children. Can you imagine if we had a reputation as a church in this community where people would come and they would say, you know, I came here because I wanted to find a church. And what I ended up discovering was a place that really helped to raise my kids right alongside me. I think that would absolutely change the way people thought about us. And so what I hope you will be able to do is to reflect on how are you helping to raise the children in this community? What are you doing to provide love and nurture for the children who are here now? And I know that we're not together right now, and we probably won't be, as I mentioned earlier, for six, eight, ten months, but hopefully we'll be back together soon, and I want you to consider what it is that you personally are going to be doing in order to benefit the children of our community. Because I can tell you that my children, they greatly benefit from having you all to help raise them. It's better than just having Courtney and myself. And I think that all the kids here really benefit from that because they need your love, warmth, acceptance, comfort, kindness, just as much as they need it from us. And if we can be a church that becomes known as a place where families can truly raise their children, then I feel like we will be prepared for that future that is coming towards us. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org. For more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.